This is hell. Greetings. It's America's birthday, and this is hell. Happy 4th of July, listeners. Speaking to you from Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge on 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westbridge neighborhood, I'm Will Ippen, producer of This Is Hell. I'm still filling in for Chuck Mertz, who's still recovering from hernia surgery. I hope that by now, Chuck, the pain is abating and that you'll be able to watch the chaotic ad hoc fireworks show that happens every 4th of July at Warren Park. Speaking of blowing stuff up in honor of our uh, nation, speaking of blowing things up to celebrate American independence, Lifehacker, that's right, the website with all of your life optimization needs for what is the purpose of life except for to optimize it. Lifehacker shares with us an article that I thought would be a a useful safety tip for all you listeners partaking in festivities today. The article is titled, 10 Ways to Not Blow Off Your Fingers This 4th of July. And the subtitle reads, This year, let's not make the same mistakes that injure people every other year. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is bad at stealing people's stoves, but it's great at blowing up mannequins. In advance of the 4th of July, CPSC today demonstrated some of the ways you could be injured or killed by fireworks on DC's National Mall using styrofoam dummies in place of humans. Carnage ensued. There's a link to the CPSC's YouTube page, their PSA. It's pretty amusing. It doesn't translate to radio well, so I won't play the clip here, but check it out. The presentation is meant to highlight the dangers of fireworks and encourage safe pyrotechnics this July 4th. According to CPSC, 11 deaths from fireworks were reported in 2022, mostly from mortar-style devices. And approximately 10,200 people suffered fireworks-related injuries that were serious enough to require an emergency room visit. It seems kind of low. 73% of fireworks injuries happened during the month surrounding July 4th holiday. Side note, I'm sure a good chunk of those happen in my neighborhood of Chicago, Rogers Park. Um, It is a firework happy place this time of year. Because both the CPSC and Lifehacker don't want you to blow off your fingers or your face this holiday weekend, below are some common sense firework safety tips. The most surefire way to avoid injury or death from fireworks is just not to mess with them. I'm sure there's more than one municipal fireworks display, presumably overseen by competent pyrotechnical professionals, planned for the holiday in your area. But I'm not satisfied with the state-sponsored demonstrations of patriotism, you might be saying. Fine, I'd reply after sighing. Here are some tips if you absolutely must light off your own explosives to celebrate America. So let's get to the list, shall we? Number one, only use legal consumer fireworks. Laws vary from state to state and municipality to municipality, but as a general rule, do not use fireworks that were purchased illegally or are not meant for consumer use. The fireworks industry can be shady. About 43% of fireworks the CPSC tested were found to contain illegal, potentially dangerous components like bad fuses, prohibited chemicals, and pyrotechnic materials overload. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? So don't buy explosives from that guy who drives through the neighborhood in a dirty white van. Second item, don't let children play with fireworks, even sparklers. Man, that's the creeping nanny state if I've ever heard it. Sparklers were like, I don't know. I remember sparklers fondly as a young kid. Anyway, let's proceed. The article reads, Kids are dumb and will do dumb things with fireworks, so don't let kids near them. Don't give them sparklers either. 
Sparklers burn at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, hot enough to melt some metals. And we just hand them out to children. It's nuts. Because your child may sneak off with their dumb friend Kevin to light off uh, fireworks away from adult supervision, warn them about the dangers advance in advance of July 4th and make sure they do the right thing. On a personal note, and this is the author of the article here, if you're 11 years old and don't think it would be funny to wrap a hot dog bun around a firecracker and throw it to a seagull, it's not funny and you'll feel guilty for the seagull's grim death for the rest of your life. Number three, keep a bucket of water or a hose nearby. Spent fireworks can cause fires too, so douse them in water if after they're used. Even legal and harmless seeming fireworks can cause brush or forest fires. In 2020, a gender reveal smoke bomb set off the El Dorado fire that burned over 20,000 acres of California, killed a firefighter, and led to 30 criminal charges, including manslaughter. While you're at it, don't hold gender reveal parties at all. That's my editorial. Sorry, listeners. Uh, you don't want to ruin your life like that, so have a plan for dousing flame if you must use fireworks. See, item number four, that's what we're on, right? Light fireworks one at a time and move away quickly. It shouldn't need to be said, but if you ignite an explosive device, move away from it immediately. And don't light several at once. Don't look into the tube and see why a flaming ball didn't shoot out of it. Don't hold firecrackers in your hands. Don't point fireworks at your friends. All of this should be common sense, but thousands of people are killed or injured by these kinds of mishaps every year. Uh, as a child, I avoided most of these mishaps. I'm guilty of a lot of these. Number five, don't try to reignite a firework or pick one up that hasn't gone off. There's always some jackass who thinks a firework is a dud, picks it up, and loses some fingers. If a firework doesn't go off, let it sit for five to ten minutes, douse it in water, and dispose of it. Next, don't point fireworks at anyone ever. No, it's not funny. You're just being a jerk. Ah, uh, it brings up fond memories of Roman candle fights as a, as a young one. Next, don't use fireworks while drunk or high. But that's the best time to use fireworks. No one keeps tabs on how many fireworks injuries are connected with drug and alcohol use, but I'd guess a ton of them. The author would guess. They don't have hard stats on this. Not buying this one. They continue. Getting blixed on the 4th is an American tradition I fully support, but don't play with potentially lethal explosives if you're impaired. Number 8. Do not try to make or alter fireworks. You are not qualified to work with explosive chemicals. Number nine, don't forget your pet. Edie the cattle dog can relate to this one, which is why I don't really play with them ever since we got her. Animals hate Independence Day, and not just because they're communists. There are ways you can make July 4th less traumatic for your fur acquaintances. Check out how to calm your dog when there are fireworks going off for details. That link takes you, probably unsurprisingly, to another Lifehacker article. And then number 10, scare yourself with gruesome details of firework-related deaths. Fireworks create ugly deaths. In its annual fireworks report, CPSC details each of the 11 fatalities from fireworks in 2022 in its grisly reading. For instance, here's a medical examiner's report on the cause of death of an 18-year-old who was struck by a mortar. Multiple blast-related injuries to the head and neck, decapitation, avulsion of brain, multiple calivarial and basilar skull fractures, facial fractures, cervical vertebrate fractures, fractures of maxilla and mandible, multiple lacerations of the tongue, cutaneous abrasions, contusions and lacerations, injuries to the torso, 
bilateral rib fractures and fracture of the sternum and cutaneous abrasions, contusions, and lacerations of extremities. On that note, have a happy 4th of July, concludes the article. Well, listeners, I hope you're scared straight. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Getting drunk and blowing things up to celebrate leaving one genocidal capitalist empire to set up your own. This is hell. Coming up, live from London, Saskia Assassin is a professor of sociology and a member of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. Saskia's most recent book at the time of our interview is titled A Sociology of Globalization, available from Norton. She wrote the open democracy piece, The Executive Politics, A Democratic Challenge, and before that, an open democracy article titled Too Big to Save and the End of Financial Capitalism. This interview was recorded on July 4th, 2009. And it's a real interesting one, folks. Without further delay, let's roll the interview. I will catch you on the flip side. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. On the line with us is Saskia Sasson. Good morning, Saskia. Hi, how are you? Good evening in England. It's great to hear your voice <laughs> well, again. Good afternoon, good afternoon. It was, uh, you know, I, when we had you as a guest on a few years ago, it was fantastic, and I've been trying to get you back on since then. It finally worked, so <laughs> welcome back. Yes, delighted to be back on with you. Uh, you wrote uh, how uh, the institutional balance within modern democratic systems is disturbed, and yeah. dis- dysfunctional. The heart of the issue is what has come to be the over uh, overweening power of the executive branch in contemporary democracies and the corresponding loss of power by the legislature. Right. What makes you say that there is indeed growing power in the executive over the legislative branch? And why is that necessarily bad? bad? Right. Well, it depends a bit who's the executive. With Obama, we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> but in principle, it's not a good idea. Now, I, I think, look, there are two trends that have happened, and one has obscured the other. One trend has to do with the war on Iraq, the September 11 bombings, um, which really falls under what we might call the state of exception. It's an emergency because our national security is threatened. Whether that is true or not is a second issue. But that certainly has generated a lot of added power for the executive branch, be that in the United States with Bush-Cheney, be that in European countries uh, as well, like the UK, for instance. Now, and that certainly has received a lot of attention. It has received so much attention, and it has, the attention has been so focused on the fact that it is a state of emergency, in other words, anomalous. This is not how it should be in normal times. In other words, it's exceptional. That that second trend of growing executive power has sort of gone beneath the radar. This second trend really begins with Reagan. It's the beginning of neoliberalism. It begins with a a socialist president in France, Mitterrand. It's Thatcher in the UK, and it is Reagan in the United States. And it is really a deep structural trend. So what happens here is that with neoliberalism, which means privatizing, deregulating, and a bunch of other things, uh, there's a structural power that accrues to the executive branch. And part of the dynamic is that it takes it out from the legislature. Why does it matter? Because we as citizens have more standing, our strongest standing is with the legislature. It is not with the executive branch of government. Number two, the legislative is a, is a place where if something gets debated, it can become, at its best, because it's very important that it do become, a public debate, a public brawl. And it has a different temporality. It, it can go on for weeks and for months and sometimes for years. And so all kinds of citizens who may not be there trying to get their daily news every day can catch on. So it really is the democratic process. 
the executive branch does makes decisions often behind closed doors. So, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that you will ask me more questions, so yeah. I don't really want to give you a full lecture here. This is just the beginning. <laughs> I, I like your full lectures, though. They're fantastic, Saskia. <laughs> you know, uh, that... Uh, <laughs> It's funny. I wrote probably about 45, 50 questions for you. And then while you're giving me your response, I think of like three or four new questions. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, how it goes. Exactly. So um, is the fact that the executive – well, for, uh, let's uh, – let me move back a little bit. Yeah. Um, can neoliberalism happen without strong executive power? Can it, strong executive power happen because of neoliberalism? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, well, I mean – in answer to your questions, of course, both are possible. <clears throat> but let me describe, and that is why I say it's structural, and I want to emphasize that it sort of goes beyond um, uh, political parties, because it went on with Clinton, it went on with a socialist in France, etc. Here's the point. When you privatize, when you privatize something that used to be in the public sector, a couple of things happen. Number one, a lot of the authority, the control, if you want, over that sector falls into the private sector, which could be the market. The market then governs it. The market regulates it, you know, with market dynamics. In that process, the legislature has lost control. You know, something has, but let's, let's lose control over that sector. Another way of putting it is it gets a bit hollowed out. It has a bit less to do because the market has taken over. Now, the thing that, and there has been a lot of documenting of this, you know, this is, a, this is a deep history that is a very strong and violent history, say, in Latin America, where the, the government owned a big part of the economy, you know, in most of those countries. It's a, it's a milder story in our country, in a way, because we already had so much private sector. But, say, deregulating finance, deregulating telecommunications, could have was, was were very significant processes, and it could have gone in another direction from the one it did. The direction it went into was to uh, to bring more and more concentration in both of those sectors: telecommunications and um, and uh, finance. Now, the the thing that has not been noticed is that so the oversight functions left the legislature and went into the market, but within the executive branch of government, they set up highly specialized commissions to, if you want, govern or, you know, supervise finance, telecommunications, different commissions for each of these specialized sectors. There are about five, seven of those commissions. Cheney added the Environmental Commission, which was also behind doors, remember. Now, those commissions were under the control of the executive branch of government, and depending on the politics of the government, <laughs> they could be staffed with the people from the private sector. So the supervision question is not so much supervising how that sector you know, conducts itself vis-a-vis -vis all kinds of issues, but it really also can become a question of implementing policies that are of the advantage of those sectors. Now, we have seen that, say, with the broadband and radio, right? A massive concentration was allowed under the Republicans, but already under Clinton as well. That was deregulated. Now, that came from the executive branch of government, and in many ways, the legislature was a rubber stamp. Another example, totally different, but part of the neoliberal era that begins 20 years ago. The IMF, the World Bank, and all kinds of other global regulators that you've never heard of became more and more significant as the neoliberal project expands. Well, they only deal with the executive branch of government. They don't want to deal with legislators, whether they are parliaments or Congress, you know, such as we have, because that slows down, it becomes a public discussion. They like dealing with the executive branch of government, whether it is a president or a prime minister, because you can do it behind closed door, you can do it quickly. The famous fast track is a nice way, is a, like a little, you know, giving it a little air of democracy, oh yes, the Congress gets to do it, but fast track basically right. means that the executive has done it. So with, with the neoliberal era, the executive branch of government actually gains more power because it negotiates a, law, a whole bunch of issues that concern trade and investment and finance, and it does so very often behind closed doors. 
Yeah, you know, I've never really trust that fast, I trusted that fast track yeah, phrase. Right. I've always, I always wanted to go to my bartender and say, hey, I want to put this on a fast track so I'm not going to be paying for these drinks because <laughs> I think that that's just about the exact same thing. I just, I'm just concerned about the efficiency of making certain I can get my drinks to me as quick as possible. You know, one of the things that you were saying, yeah, right. saying earlier was how, uh, well, this, you know, executive power, having too much executive power, having too much power in the executive branch, uh, it also depends on who your executive is. Yeah. You're saying under Obama, we are, you know, better off than we were under uh, President Bush. But no matter how great the uh, executive is, uh, do you think it would be best if that executive, instead of trying to flex his executive power, would work towards dwindling down executive power? Or, or it, it does it because one of the things that I always hear, yeah. you know, I always notice when the Republicans have the White House, they want to have unitary executive. They want mm-hmm. to have executive rule. When Democrats get in the office, when they were opposing that kind of rule under uh, the Republican president, as soon as they get in office, oh, now we're all for it. So uh, so, right. so, what do we do to yeah. have consistency here? Yeah, no, you, you, you ask a very good question. Now, let's put it in, a, in concrete historical terms. This moment in the United States, our country is a mess. We have a problem with health care, unsustainable health care. It gets more and more expensive, and it still keeps out, you know, we're putting more and more taxpayers' money into it, and it still keeps out 45 million uh, Americans, etc. We all know the figures. Um, with the environmental question, is not very good. It's, so here comes Obama with his great executive power. He is the most powerful president in, an, in, a, you know, in, in, in the current, in the history that we have had over the last 100 years. He has even more power than Bush. Now, what he doesn't have is the abuse of power through Patriot Act. Okay, but Obama has a lot of power. So he does a few very good things. As soon as he comes in, he passes dozens, dozens of executive orders that eliminate a lot of the executive orders that Bush passed. Bush passed more executive orders, which are orders that he can implement directly by himself. He doesn't need to go to Congress, right? That's really the power of the executive branch. He passed more of those than any preceding president. Well, Obama came in. He clearly had done his homework. And the first day that he was in office, or the first week, he passed dozens of executive orders, you know, altering all kinds of things. Now, they were all good. They were great. We were very, very happy, we who were democratically inclined, right, with GM. He says, no, GM, you're going to go broke, and you're only going to be revived if you do a car that is more environmentally sustainable. You know, that's not bad. Right. And in a way, it's, it's also good for the workers that they are in a sector that, will, that, ha- that is sustainable, you know, in terms of market demand, etc. All of that is good. Now, with the economy, I, you know, I blog for the Huffington Post on finance, and I was a brutal critic of the choice that he had of his financial team, Larry Summers and Geithner. Geithner doesn't have a compass. He doesn't know what to do. So he does whatever the most influential person next to him says. And they're basically all sons of Rubin, right, the former mm-hmm. secretary. So, so, and I didn't like Larry Summer. I do not like some of the features of the bailout. I really am deeply troubled by that. I've written quite a bit of it that is very critical. So there, I think, Obama did not do the right thing, but he had the power to do it. No matter how many citizens were critical of putting all that money into banks, there was nothing they could actually do. That is also the power of the executive. Now, in this concrete period, we have a whole bunch of legislators who have not done their homework, so they don't have a compass either. What is the proper way to handle the bailout, all the taxpayers' money that has gone to rescue banks? Which, you know, is $1.5 trillion, but we have committed another $7 trillion. And, and these are costs that, go, that are going to keep on. So it's a disaster on that front, as far as I'm concerned. Um, now, we have a bunch of legislators, back to the legislature, we have a bunch of legislators who really haven't done their homework in years. They checked out of telecommunications, of finance. That's just too complicated. We'll leave that to the experts. And, um, and the experts that the executive branch brought in, of course, come from the sectors because they are the only ones who really understand because also there nobody did their homework, really. Now, then we have a bunch of legislators who have sold out to lobbies. So our legislature right now is not highly admirable. There are there are several, there are a number of people who are great. They're just the kind of legislators that we need. But our legislature will water down 
every measure that Obama passes, when even the Financial Times, which is not a lefty organization, right, yeah, a newspaper, yeah, yeah. however, it's, a, it's like a market. They really believe in the market, you know, which actually, if you really believe in markets, you are definitely to the left of our big monopolies and big corporate banks, because they are truly aggressive. Right. I mean, they don't want a free market. They don't want all the 7,000 small banks that the United States have to get a good share of the bailout. They want it all for themselves, you know. So, so anyhow, the Financial Times says that Obama should be tougher on Congress vis-a-vis the environmental bill, vis-a-vis health care, and vis-a-vis also certain aspects of the financial bailout, but especially the first two. Because Congress is watering down Obama's concept. Now, we already saw that with a, with a bailout. You know, that was a more complicated discussion because that included so many things. But definitely with environmental, and they fear it with health as well. So that is just to give you an idea. This is how middle level, I mean, so, so it's not high quality. You know, it's sort of fairly low quality, our legislature. That's a problem. Then Obama is much more high quality because he has done his homework and he has a compass. That a compass, moreover, that tells him what is good for the country. The only major flaw he has had is on the bailout, which he partly inherited, and then he appointed the wrong people who kept the same old line that was under under Bush and under Clinton. You favor the big banks. You really let them get by with murder. You know, you rescue the bankers rather than a banking system, a banking system that includes 7,000 small banks that are distributed all over the country, and that get it with small firms, with middle-level households, you know, they, they, they just treat them differently than these big banks. Uh, I want to get into your article about uh, the end of uh, financialization. There are two big to save that you wrote back in April in just a second. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I want to reintroduce you to our audience. We're speaking with Saskia Sasson. She's a professor of sociology, member of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. Most recent book is 2007's A Sociology of Globalization. You can purchase that book directly from the publisher by clicking on the link that we have on the front page of our website. She wrote this week's Open Democracy piece, The New Executive Politics, A Democratic Challenge. Before that, she wrote April's Open Democracy article. Too Big to Save the End of Financial Capitalism. Before we get to that article, I just, I just want to uh, flesh out a couple of things about executive power. Yeah. One, uh, because there is no legislative oversight for a lot of these free trade agreements, you were saying yeah. that the public is there for, that no debate is created, and the public is therefore out of the free trade agreement debate. And we d- have not seen that much debate over any of these free trade agreements in the mainstream media here in the United States since NAFTA. So since, what, uh, November or uh, January 1st, 1996, we haven't seen much debate whatsoever. Is is the weakness of the legislative branch, or uh, conversely, the strength of the executive branch, uh, and and the fact that there is no legislative oversight of these free trade agreements, Mm -hmm. is that what makes these free trade agreements, this neoliberal policy, is that what makes Mm -hmm. it bipartisan? Is that what makes it above debate because there is no legislative oversight? Yeah, well, I mean, yes and no. The the issue is that in the face of negotiation, they negotiate behind closed doors. They negotiate our futures away behind closed doors. I mean, WTO law is truly a global law in that a, a firm under WTO law can straight go straight to a local court, launch a lawsuit, in a local court, he doesn't have to go through, it's not an interstate uh, agreement in that sense, and claim that the local environmental legislation is violating the rights of free trade of that firm. There were a whole bunch of those lawsuits. This is outrageous. You understand how outrageous this is, right? So all of this was allowed at the stage of negotiation. We're talking way back in the early 1990s and in the 1980s. So the the problem is that the system is not set up so that you actually have an extensive and well-informed debate, as we had with immigration law, say, way back in the 1980s, you know, the big immigration law that was passed. Um, And so in that sense, it is that 
that stage of negotiation, once it's implemented, you know, the legislatures check out what's the point, the law has been passed, and, and then the system is, you know, running. When we deregulated finance and, and, and the most severe uh, deregulation vis-a-vis the current crisis, of course, happened under Clinton with Larry Summers, we all know that by now, right, the separating right. Of, of speculative functions from traditional banking, so that Citicorp is half uh, traditional banking operation, you know, with capital reserves, highly quite regulated still, and the other half is a speculative, it might as well be a hedge fund, you know. That, how could they allow that? Well, that was under Clinton. And the legislature in that, in that case sort of checks out. Now, all of this is part of really an international project in the sense that it is part, in the case of the financial bid, it is part of building up a global financial system. And that meant that country after country after country after country, you know, like over 150 countries, had to pass these kinds of legislations. Each of those countries had a financial crisis. We had our financial crisis way, way internal to the country, way back in the 1980s, when all the little uh, credit unions, uh, you know, all of those lost their chance for existence, the, the Trust and Resolution Corporation, where we put a huge bailout in the hands of the government, that each country, as it adjusts their legislation, their regulation in terms of finance, in order to construct this global financial market, uh, had a crisis, country after country. This is all well documented. It never entered, you know, the, the global conversation, whether on the left or on the right, mind you, because it was sort of, an, it was seen as an individual country uh, country crises. So a lot of this stuff really happens at the level of negotiation. And then once it's implemented, I think that legislatures and citizens felt over these two decades, well, it's all done now, what can we do? Now, there was, there was a bit of debate on the trust resolution. You were too young <laughs> to follow that, but I was not. You know, I was already writing about that stuff in the 1980s. So I, for me, all these crises and these bailouts, you know, this is not the first time we do it. And it all has gone in a certain direction. So it's the, the level of the shaping of a new regime. That is what matters. Once that has happened, you know, they can have all the debates that they want. But the law has been changed. Thank you for assuming I'm that young, because unfortunately, <laughs> I was in my 20s at the time and following it so very closely. So yes, unfortunately, <laughs> I do. All right. So let's get to your, your article real quick. Uh, to be too big to save the yeah. end of financial capitalism. Yeah. Uh, back in April, you wrote uh, that uh, for quote, the global financial system, it is too late. The evidence is in. We don't have the resources to save the system, even if we wanted to. And then I'd, I'd love the way that you describe this, because it's a way in which and I'm, I don't know much about economics, but it's a way in which I can understand how big the problem is. You say it has become too big to save. The value of global financial assets is several times the size of global gross national product. The real challenge is not to save the system, which has clearly been wrongly valued, but to definancialize our economies as a prelude to move beyond the current model of capitalism. Why should the value of financial assets stay at almost four times the overall GDP of the EU and even more of the U.S.? Uh, What do everyday citizens or the planet gain from such excess? Have you seen anything (laughs) since you wrote this article in April? Have you seen anything that's moving us away from... Global yeah. capital financialization. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me make two points. Number one, that the title of the article was given by the editor, the editor of Open Dem, and I really recommend it to everybody, is David Hayes, and he's fantastic. I okay. trust him completely. However, it's not the kind of title that I would have given. Yes, but it caught my eye. Yeah, I know that. Exactly. <laughs> he's a, he, he knows his job. Uh, and so it's because it is a bit stronger than I. I just make an, an argument that I, somewhere in there I say, look, we need finance because finance really makes capital uh, in a way that traditional banking accumulates capital but much more progressively. Finance is capable of, you know, making $40 million into $100 uh, million very quickly. The, the critical point is to not keep it on more, more and more invented money, but to grab it and materialize it. So you're from 40, you've gone to 100. Okay, take it down and build a high-speed rail system or something. 
you know, that is in the collective good. And that is, of course, what does not happen when you have, you know, a situation, a, a system like we have where the only logic is profit. So my, my point is that we have, we have financialized too many sectors. All sectors in the U.S. economy are now financialized. The last one is the little mortgages of low and modest income households in our, you know, that they invented a new instrument that allowed them to, to financialize those. Way back in the 80s, they began to financialize our credit card debt. They needed millions of our little debts to make it work for a financial for a secondary circuit, you know, where the financial investors operate. Same thing with good mortgages, right? Now they are down to the, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel with the subprime mortgages, given what they did. We can return to that uh, in a bit. Um, and so they have financialized, 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 and they keep in a speculative mode the, these piles of money that have been made, uh, $160 trillion, that is, you know, that, that is invented money that has been sloshing around in the last 10, 10 years. We could have done so much with it. But what was done with it, it just kept in that financial circuit. So I'm not against a little bit of finance. The problem is that we've taken it way beyond, and we're not doing what the Chinese do. The Chinese regularly go there, and they have made all this extra money, and bomb, they bring it down and build a city, you know. <laughs> that so, might be good or bad. But, and so the, the point here is that we are, you know, we're in the wrong logic, I say, in the West. And this, this crisis is different from earlier crises because it has, it has sort of, it, it's the moment of self-exhaustion of the system. So now, coming concrete answer to your question. Look, there is 50 trillion that are gone of that value. So that's good. You know, that is deleveraging. Now, people often ask, so where did those 50 trillion go? Who has them? They went nowhere. They are just air. Because instead of materializing them into, again, a huge rail system or, or weatherizing all the homes in the United States, whatever you could have done with 50 trillion, you know, they kept making it a platform for yet more speculation. But 50 trillion are gone. So that has adjusted the value. But here's the story. The story is that this system is so powerful, and I must say the financial, uh, the bailout of the banks has helped those banks. And that's where, instead of disciplining them, it has actually helped them to do more of the same. And that is what I hold against the Obama administration. And there were people in Congress, you know, who had it right, who were critics, who said, don't do it this way. But he had the power not to listen to them. That comes back to your first question, you know, that we need an intelligent, well-informed legislature. They don't have to agree all with each other. They don't. But there has to be a serious debate rather than these Mickey Mouse uh, debates that we have sometimes, you know, with, with rare exceptions, because there are some who are really beginning to do their homework seriously. They, they have it down. They have understood what is wrong in terms of this financial system, for instance. Have I answered your question a yeah, bit? Yeah, 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 you yeah. did. Uh, Saskia, one last question for you. We've been speaking, yeah. speaking with Saskia Assassin. She's talking to us live from London. Our last question, as always, Saskia, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You oh. might hate to answer. I'm not too sure, but are you ready? Uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, I, you know, I, I had a few different ones written down, uh, you know, because we've had people on who've talked about how it's the, uh, you know, the, over the last few years, how it's the end of neoconservatism. And we've asked people yeah. if, uh, you know, right. uh, is there any such thing as conservatism left anymore because of neoconservatism? And so I was going to ask you maybe <laughs> something. Is there such thing as liberalism anymore? Has it been taken over by neoliberalism? But I don't know. I thought that was just a little bit too... I don't know, wordy, thinky, I don't know, pedantic. Let's see. I'm not too sure. But how about this? What is the, how do you see the perfect balance in a three-branch democratic system? When when you're talking about how executive power has too much power over legislative uh, power, uh, what is the correct balance between executive and legislative? And how is it even possible for us to take the powers away from the executive branch today that we have given it? Yeah, yeah. Well, excellent question, actually. So, number one, the legislature should be chock full of specialized committees 
who really do their homework and who have a very good and solid understanding about what is happening. And that means, number two, that they will see the need to make new laws. And this is what this, our legislature has done, very little new law. They basically are pork-barreling money, money that comes from the taxpayers, they're redistributing. They do not make new laws. We need a whole bunch of new laws. From uh, the one end having to do with national security, how do we protect citizens from excessive power of, of, of uh, you know, the policing forces, etc. We need new law vis-a-vis these issues of finance. It is not possible that there is such a privileging of this big financial system. It is simply not acceptable in a democracy. New laws need to be made. Now, number two, the executive branch of government. The executive branch of government has forever the advantage in terms of power because it has the option of secrecy. But, for instance, under Bush and Cheney, the, the executive granted the Department of Environment, the Department of Health, and the Department of Agriculture, the right to classify their documents. That was the first time. Why? Because there were lawsuits going on because of the excessive subsidies to corporate farming as family farms were going under, the whole environmental protection, protecting, in other words, big companies that had destroyed land from having to clean up. I mean, all kinds of things. Well, you know, we can push for the executive branch to minimize secrecy. And frankly, with Clinton, his attorney general, remember the, the woman, uh, she, one of the things she said is we're going to try to declassify as much as we can. With Bush, Cheney passed a thing saying we're going to try to classify. Feel free to classify as much as you want, and we will support you. <laughs> you know, so there are multiple specialized ways of creating a better balance. But each part, and the legislatures, I think, have the biggest burden. They really have to become knowledgeable about what needs to be done and to have to make new law. And we have to kill some old laws. It's very difficult, you know, very difficult to kill a statute, which is really a law. <laughs> and it's, and, but we also have to make new law. That's one, one first step. I mean, my answer is longer, but that is a first step. But it is always going to be a battle. You know, but we always hear here in the United States, we always hear about how uh, people who are elected officials spend what, like if you're a two-year elected official, you spend the first eight months maybe governing and then the next four, uh, 16 months uh, raising money for your next campaign. Yeah, I know. Is it, it, is it possible, possible to be a well-informed legislator today, given the com- uh, campaign finance system that we yeah. have? No, I'm telling you that that is why we need specialized committees. I see. Because the staff has the knowledge, but it means that I the legislators you. have to take themselves seriously. They have to take those committees seriously. The other thing, you know, that really intersects with your question also is that if once we take the environment seriously, there are all kinds of measures that are going to be far longer term than, than the four-year or two-year electoral cycle. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, with land, you know, when if corporate agriculture makes a measure productivity per year, etc., they can show that they, are the, they can create the most productive land, you know, with chemicals and I don't know what else. Right. But, in fact, if you take, but in, at the end of 20 or 30 years, that land is dead. <laughs> right. Monocrop, etc. If you take crop rotation and you take a longer temporal frame, then you can establish that that land is far more productive. But it only shows up in your data if you take, you know, 20 years, because you've kept the land alive, you know, with different rotations, and you minimize the use of chemicals, etc. Now, that is just an example that I think is familiar, and everybody can understand it, to capture, you know, a whole series, or to illustrate a whole series of such issues. So when I speak about the need for specialized committees that really have well-informed staff, and that the politicians take these committees seriously, because that's the only way of going beyond the two-year cycle in Congress. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, it's critical. If we're and and the environmental issue is one of these these uh, facts that cuts across a lot of stuff, and it could be a vehicle. I think I, I, I sense in Obama that he wants to use it that way, you know, as a vehicle to get at all kinds of other things. Same thing with healthcare, a vehicle to, to, to 
take away power from the pharmaceuticals and from the private insurance companies and create a more distributed system. It's not just about healthcare. It's about reorganizing a system where you have more distributed uh, power there rather than this extremely concentrated power. I see. All right. Well, Saskia, I really appreciate you being back on our show this morning. Uh, it was a fa- another fantastic interview. I really appreciate it. Your writing's great. And uh, oh, I'm looking. Are you going to be putting out a new book soon? Uh, well, I'm putting out. I started a new project on cities and the new wars, and so I'm beginning to write a, f- uh, a short essay about that. It's going to be a little book. And where's wh- uh, how are we going to go? Oh, I don't that? know yet. I have several publishers who are interested. You can imagine this is rather quite the subject. And uh, but I will let you know. All right, promise me. <laughs> All right, take care, Saskia. Have a bye, great weekend. Bye. Nice bye. Talking. bye. This is hell. You are here, and this is hell. Did you hear that sound at the end of the interview of the landline phone hanging up? It really brings me back to simpler times. You know when America was great again or something a line jumped out at me listeners that I thought I would repeat Saskia states now that we have a bunch of legislators who really haven't done their homework in years they checked out of telecommunications they checked out of finance it's too complicated for me let's leave that to the experts and the experts at the executive branch Of course, they come from the sectors of industry because they are the only ones who really understand. Because there, also, nobody did their homework. Then we have a bunch of legislators who have sold out to lobbyists. So our legislator right now is not highly admirable, end quote. What has changed in the intervening 14 years, I ask? Is our legislature more or less checked out? Uh, Do we have more or less neoliberal power accrual in the executive branch in the corporate world at the expense of legislative oversight? Again, the place where people have the most power, at least in theory. It seems the right wing, at least, especially the MAGA and white male supremacist and Christian fanatic factions within it are waking up and realizing that they can enjoy some great power in the legislature should they choose to exercise it. Most of the mainstream coverage of the House of Representatives, who these idiots now uh, control, uh, points to what a... uh, horror show that body is right now that the dog has caught the car in that legislative body they aren't behaving like the real adults in the room so contend the pathologically centrist democrats and their increasingly irrelevant uh, neoconservative never trump buddies uh, would argue as if that coalition managed to get much done when they were in power, or even showed much interest in actually legislating on anything of real material importance while they had power. They've been content letting the courts legislate for them so they don't inconvenience their corporate donors or alienate an imagined swing voter that only exists anymore as a mathematical mirage. Indeed, their main stated purpose seems twofold. One, to punch left whenever the rest of us critique the neoliberal hellscape that we inhabit and they helped create. And two, to keep the Republicans at bay and out of control and maintain a status quo that only the top 20% of the population would say enables human thriving. While the liberals equivocate and wonk their way into irrelevance one half measure at a time, The far right is seeking to actually use our institutions to bring about change, and horrifying and fascist as their vision for change might be. At least they don't want to leave governance to unaccountable technocrats who rotate in and out of industry and regulation uh, to, to capitalists so they can churn money with impunity, perpetuate the military industrial death cycle, accumulate and monetize as many human and ecological relationships as they can, 
and in the process cook the earth in a blanket of greenhouse gases, all in the name of unending and increasing growth and returns on investment. Much of the right's anti-expertise is downright deplorable, but so too is the liberal assumption that we can simply curtail democracy and manage our way out of crises. What's my point in this? I don't really know. It's a good question. But I know one thing, that this is hell. Before we conclude, I thought the recent uh, June 27th, 2023 uh, Pew Research findings might uh, help prime us for our next episode where we interview Chalmers Johnson on American Empire. This recent Pew study gauges global perceptions of the United States and whoever the president happens to be. That president happens to be uh, Joe Biden right now. And uh, the reviews are mostly positive as the report concludes. I won't read the whole report here. You can find it on pewresearch.org. It says at the top, In the third year of his presidency, U.S. President Joe Biden receives mostly positive reviews from publics around the world. Across 23 countries, in a new Pew Research Center survey, a median of 54% express confidence in Biden, while 39% say they lack confidence in him. Similarly, overall views of the United States are largely positive. A median of 59% give the U.S. a favorable rating, including around 7 in 10 or more in Poland, Israel, South Korea, Nigeria, Japan, and Kenya. Hungary is the only country surveyed where fewer than half see the U.S. favorably. Ah, oh, man, I bet that really upsets uh, the, the CPAC crowd out there. I mean, didn't they just have that in Hungary not so long ago? Because they really kind of like what Orban is up to over there with his brand of fascism. They'd very much like to bring it here. Anyway, the report continues, America's actions on the world stage have often shaped its global image, and as the survey highlights, public opinion about U.S. foreign policy is often complex, with people seeing both positive and negative sides to American power. Overwhelmingly, people believe the U.S. interferes in the affairs of other countries. A median of 82% say it does. This a great deal. Or a fair amount. I want to see metrics on these vibey terms. But most also believe that the U.S. contributes to peace and stability around the world. International public opinion is essentially divided over how much the U.S. considers the interests of other countries when it's making its foreign policy decisions. However, in roughly half the nations surveyed, the share of the public that thinks the U.S. does consider other countries is higher than it has ever been since Pew Research Center started asking this question more than two decades ago. Well, congratulations, Joe. The world thinks that you muck about in other countries more considerately than presidents of the past two decades. The survey also explores other aspects of American power, including elements of U.S. soft power. America's technology, universities, military, and entertainment, that's quite the collection of, quite the grab bag of items, are all seen as being the best or above average when compared with other wealthy nations, although the U.S. receives mixed reviews for its standard of living. Might also add that I think we're at the top, if not near the top, in terms of the proportion of our population who are incarcerated. But
that might not have been in the survey. Perceptions of American economic power have increased in several countries over the past few years, and respondents tend to name the U.S. rather than China as the world's leading economic power. However, in a number of European countries, as well as Australia, China is considered the top global economy. That's got to sting, Joe. These findings come from a new Pew Research Center survey conducted from February 20th to May 22nd, 2023. Among 27,285 people in 23 countries, and this is key, guys, many of which are key U.S. allies. The report continues with lots of other findings and rankings. For one, and probably not surprisingly, Biden is uh, significantly more popular than Trump in middle-income nations. Better to have a sleepy Joe at the helm than uh, a erratic and unpredictable uh, man-baby who paints himself orange. And looks like in some of these countries, he's trailing Obama a little bit if I'm looking the graphs. Uh, I'm sure that would change in the countries where uh, the unrestricted drone, drone warfare meant, you know, unpredictable death from above, but no matter. Of the countries who say the U.S. considers their interests in its foreign policy is at a high point in Poland, Germany, and the U.K. Wonder why. Couldn't be all the flexing, flexing about, uh, you know, Russia's aggression and all of that. Many see the U.S. aligned with other wealthy nations on various societal issues. And American tech, entertainment, colleges, and the military are rated above average by other countries. Anyway, lots to go over in this report. I encourage you all to check it out in honor of... America's birthday. You can find this report at pewresearch.org and it's currently hanging out at the top of the page on the right. Coming up from a July 4th, 2009 show, we feature Chuck's interview with Chalmers Johnson, who wrote the Tom Dispatch piece, How to Deal with America's Empire of Bases and the Truth Dig piece, Chalmers Johnson on the Cost of Empire. The interview features his insights from those works as well as the Tom Dispatch article, The Economic Death Spiral at the Pentagon. Chalmers is president of the Japan, Social Pol or Japan Policy Research Institute and professor emeritus at the University of California, San Diego. He wrote the trilogy that includes Nemesis, The Crisis of the American Republic, Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire, and The Sorrows of Empire, Militarism, Secrecy, and the End of the Republic. Also coming up on tomorrow's show, we will hear another moment of truth from longtime friend of the show, Jeff Dorchin. Prefiguring his super truth items, Jeff once told us about some bats he made up on November 10th, 2018. I'm producer Will Ippen, still filling in for Chuck Mertz. If all goes according to plan, Chuck should be returning 
on Monday of next week. Uh, for those who like dates, that would be July 10th. Exposing the neoliberal devolution of power so you don't have to. This is hell. Have a happy, safe fourth, listeners. I'll catch you tomorrow. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>